You know, when I was your age, go ask your mother. I know you don't like it. It builds character. How many times do I have to tell you? I'm not just talking to hear my own voice. Hello, listener, and welcome to Datages. I'm your host, Chad Hagel. And if you are looking for some fatherly wisdom for your career, your family, or any other aspect of your life, then you've come to the right place. If you want to learn more about Datages, find additional content, submit questions or feedback to me, or if you want to know if that mental picture you have of me after hearing my voice matches my real face, visit datages.com. Thanks for being here. And before you listen to our podcast, please listen to your father. Datages friends and family, welcome back to the podcast. Today's episode is the continuation of our discussion, It Takes Credit to Make Money. But today, we're shifting from a focus on early-stage technology companies and startups to the realm of real estate. This will be my first opportunity to share with all of you a bit about the history of my company and the pathway I've taken through my real estate career. At the end of today's episode, I'm also going to touch on the current state of the financing markets and what's going on within the banking system today. As I'm composing this episode of Datages, I'm in the Warsaw Airport headed to Zurich and reading a headline in The Guardian that says, Banking sell-off intensifies amid renewed global jitters. Sounds like a storm brewing, right? We'll get to that. So let's pick up where we left off in terms of my professional development. When last we saw Chad Hagel, it was circa 2000, and he was pulling into the station to disembark from the roller coaster known as the dot-com boom. So what happened next? Well, after I was tasked with firing most of the team at GetFit.com, I had to find a way to fire myself. I was one of the co-founders, but I wasn't the captain, and I had no intentions of going down with the ship. So I started looking for a life raft, and I turned to one of my closest colleagues who had been a part of GetFit's earlier days, but had subsequently departed, Adam Weiner. Adam was now providing technical leadership to an early-stage venture capital firm in San Diego named Windmere Venture Capital. Windmere was predominantly an incubator biotech VC firm, but much of their portfolio crossed over the space between medicine and information technology. Given my pre-medical educational background and my time at GetFit and providing senior operational leadership within a technology development setting, it seemed like a natural fit. I was off to San Diego for a stint as a venture associate with Windmere, and I was inserted into an early-stage portfolio company called MD Edge. It was a good concept and a very good experience for me working in a position that straddled venture capital and business operations in a medical setting. Fast forward to late 2001. I was enjoying life in San Diego. MD Edge was plugging along. It was fine, but was never going to amount to a home run. It always kind of felt temporary. And then the phone rang. It was none other than my college roommate and my closest friend from college, Damon Dunn. During the three or four years that had elapsed since our time together at Stanford, Damon had been a journeyman in the NFL. He was a very good wide receiver and special teams player at Stanford who set some kickoff return records. He fought his way into the NFL. Along his journey, he had landed with the Jacksonville Jaguars, the New York Jets, the Cleveland Browns, and ultimately his hometown team of the Dallas Cowboys. What Damon had to share with me in that call was unfortunate, to say the least. 
He had injured his knee in training camp for Dallas in what everyone believed was going to be his breakout season. It was the typical NFL story. The young guy fights and fights and finally gets his big break, only to have it stolen away from him by an untimely injury. Hey, it's the league, as they say. You can't be surprised by such a turn of events. It's the rule, not the exception. But what he said to me next was definitely a surprise. Hey, buddy, we got to find something else to do. I'm sorry, we? I said. Yeah, I'm going to have to take a step in a very different direction in my life. And if I'm going to do that, I'd like to do it with you. Crazy, right? Maybe, maybe not. He caught me on a particular day when my mind was working in a particular way, and my answer was something like, okay, why not? We decided to return to my roots in the family business of commercial real estate development. So as of that moment, we were business partners and real estate developers. Now here's where I have to interrupt the story to provide a disclaimer. I get asked by young people all the time, how did you get into real estate? I'm about to share with you the detailed version of that story, but as I tell every person who asks, this is not the way to get into real estate. There are typical pathways that most people follow to find their way into the real estate industry, and in particular to become real estate developers. Most of these pathways follow a more traditional trajectory that involves an entry-level position in a single aspect of the real estate industry that allows you to learn and grow and progress through the industry to the point that you can start doing your own deals. Some of those pathways include being a real estate broker, where you can develop the tenant relationships and landowner relationships that are critical to success. Others get into the industry as money people, working in banking or private equity or you know the finance side of real estate, and then gradually migrating into an operational development role. Still others may follow a more particular set of skills into real estate. I'm not talking about Liam Neeson from Taken and those particular set of skills. I'm referring to legal skills or a strong project management background that someone can leverage to make their way into being a developer. But at this stage in life, when Damon and I were each about 25 years old, no one had told us what we couldn't do. So we just became developers. We surveyed the landscape and identified a market that was growing strongly. I hearkened back to advice my father had given me about real estate many times. Growth makes up for many mistakes. Damon and I knew full well that we were going to make a lot of mistakes and needed to be operating in a market where there was tremendous growth to help us work through the mistakes that we would make while we were learning the business. We chose Phoenix, Arizona. In the early 2000s, Phoenix was on fire. I'm not just talking about the 115-degree temperatures during the day. The growth there was explosive. Damon and I picked up, moved to Phoenix, got an apartment in the south end of town in an area called Awatuki, and our company was born. Second half development. We decided to play on Damon's NFL background to create some identity and distinction for ourselves in the marketplace. Obviously, I had a head start in real estate because I'd grown up around it. To me, it wasn't really business. It was more just simple logic and a way of life. And there was a process that I'd learned from my father. I'm not going to get into the details of the process at this time. I'll save that for a future episode. In today's episode, we are far more focused on real estate finance than we are on the real estate development process. And I can't give away all my secrets in one episode anyway. Generally, the process was focused on the notion of being a build-to-suit developer 
for regional and national tenants. That has been the model for my company from its inception and remains the model today. The process involves managing a development program for a tenant within any particular marketplace. One of the strongest sectors in the real estate boom in Phoenix was the retail pharmacy sector. They were not only aggressive tenants looking to expand rapidly all over the place, but they were also very strong operators with great credit. Basically, they never defaulted on a lease. The largest player was Walgreens. So Damon and I set out to develop an entire program for Walgreens. We spent months putting together research and identifying potential opportunities and building a statistical and demographic analysis to be able to quantify and rank sites for presentation to Walgreens. Damon was always the relationship guy, and he was never afraid to pick up the phone and call anyone and ask for anything. And he had this innate gift that made people want to help him and give him opportunity. He got on the phone with the Walgreens real estate rep for Arizona, and we shared the work we had done and made the pitch to become a developer for them. Our work actually made quite an impression. The real estate manager told us it exceeded the level of effort and insight that any of his current stable of developers in Arizona had provided. But he went on to explain that he had far too many developers chasing deals for him at the time, and the last thing he needed was another developer in the mix. But over the phone, he gave us a virtual wink and a nudge, and he said, I'd hate to see you guys contact Eckerd Pharmacy with any of this data because I hear they are getting ready to make an entry into the Arizona market in a big way. This turn of events is actually an example of another of my dadages that I will cover in a future episode. When you work hard, it will always pay off, just not usually where you expect it to. The Walgreens rep had no reason to help us. He just saw two young guys who were working their asses off and he had respect for what we had done. We had built credibility through our hard work, and he rewarded that with market insight that led us to an opportunity that was a better fit. For those of you that don't remember Eckerd Pharmacy, it was actually my hometown pharmacy in Florida growing up. It had grown regionally throughout the Southeast before trying to expand further across the growth markets in the Southwestern United States. By the fact that they are no longer around, you can surmise it didn't work out that well, but we'll get to that. So Damon's next move was to pick up the phone and hunt down the decision maker at Eckerd. Enter Chris Salemi, vice president of real estate for Eckerd Pharmacy at that time. Damon's dramatic pitch to Chris was something like, hey, Chris, we have 120 sites in Phoenix and Tucson that we would like to present to you. Probably out of pure shock and awe more than any business sensibility, Chris was compelled to set a meeting with us to find out what the hell we were up to. He invited us to come to Florida and sit down with him and a couple of other real estate leaders who were pressing the charge into the Arizona market. It was at this moment that we realized we might have gotten ourselves in over our heads. I reached out to my father, who had been tracking our progress to that point from afar, and I asked him if he would be open to accompanying us to the meeting with Eckerd, really just to lend a bit more street cred. He agreed. I think he was more curious than anything just to see how it might go. We organized all the research we had done into giant binders and figured that we had nothing to lose with being completely open and transparent presenting all of our research to Eckerd. We went into a giant boardroom at their headquarters, and we met for a couple of hours. We walked them through all of the research we had done, and we basically gifted them with several months of our hard work in the form of all of the market research and property identification information that we provided to them. At the end of the presentation... They said it was the most comprehensive market research and the most astute identification of opportunities they had ever seen from a developer. Then they asked the million-dollar question. But tell us, 
Why should we work with you guys? Because you are all Datages friends and family at this point, I'm willing to admit to all of you that to this day, I still cannot remember a single word that came out of my mouth in response to that question. I have no idea how we answered, and I have no idea if it was compelling or made any sense at all. And then we left. Days and weeks went by. It felt like an eternity. We had run out of great ideas, and we were really at a dead end. Uh, Damon began the process of applying to law school, and I was applying to business school at the same time, thinking that our brief real estate careers had come to an unceremonious early conclusion. I failed to mention that Damon was also an ordained reverend from the age of 19. He spent a lot of his time involved in outreach and engagement with children in particular. He had gone back to Jacksonville, where he had been a meaningful member of the community during his time as a Jaguar. He was in a hospital ministering to a child who was terminally ill when his phone rang, and he stepped out to take the call. It was Chris Salemi. He said in his characteristic, unemotional monotone, we're going to give you guys one deal. We'll see what you can do from there. Eckerd had given us a single assignment to pursue a development of a property for them in Glendale, Arizona. It was the southeast corner of 75th Avenue and Bethany Home Road. Obviously, this site means a lot to me, and I will never forget the location or the address for the rest of my life. We went to work right away. And as Eckerd started to see our diligence and our performance and dedication, we were rewarded. They knew that we were just crazy enough to go somewhere no one else would go and work harder than anyone else would. Chris called us back several weeks later and said, we're going to look at New Mexico. Can you guys do in New Mexico exactly what you did for Arizona before you met with us the first time? Obviously, the answer was, hell yeah, we can. So again, Damon and I jumped in the car and headed to New Mexico. We spent weeks and months scouring the market and identifying a program of opportunities and came back to Eckerd with a similar detailed analysis and a selection of viable properties that could be acquired and developed for them. That ended up leading to a portfolio of 16 sites that we could develop for them. Amazing. But now what? How do we pursue 16 sites when we're now nearly broke and have spent every penny of our savings just to get to this point? Ah, but remember, today's dadage. It doesn't take money to make money. It takes credit. Great. We didn't have any of that either. We were two 25-year-old kids with a couple of credit cards and not much else in the way of a credit history. But we did have a form of credit. The form of credit that you cultivate through hard work to create meaningful and valuable opportunities. Through now over a year of work, Damon and I had demonstrated that we could identify, evaluate, and secure real estate development opportunities with a strong credit-worthy tenant. The work we had done to create the deals created two forms of credit. The first credit we created through our hard work was based upon the underlying real estate itself. With a credible offer from a tenant and identified opportunities, the deals themselves started to become creditworthy. Let's talk about what makes a truly creditworthy commercial real estate development deal. One, property control. You have to either own the property or have it under binding agreement to purchase. Two, a lease. You have to have a binding lease with a tenant 
or in the case of a multi-tenant property, a combination of tenants that produces sufficient income to at least cover payments you'll have to make on your loan and to your equity partners. Three, quality tenants. We use the term signature strength. The tenants with whom you have signed leases must themselves be credit worthy based upon either an explicit credit rating from an agency like Moody's or Standard & Poor's or an accounting analysis of their balance sheet. Four, approvals. There are two types of governmental approvals in real estate, discretionary and by right. Discretionary approvals are related to planning and zoning and can be denied by governmental authorities for any number of reasons. It is absolutely critical to have discretionary approvals in place for a deal to be credit worthy. By right approvals, on the other hand, are those that are granted as long as you follow codes and regulations. The most common by right approval is a building permit. Sometimes you can get away with not having a building permit and still consider a deal credit worthy, as long as you can credibly demonstrate the permit is available to be processed and procured. Five, a pro forma. You need to be able to demonstrate to capital sources that there is a financial model that will yield a satisfactory return to pay back all of the investors. And then six, a signed contract. It is best to have a fully negotiated and signed guaranteed maximum price contract with a general contractor to build the project. This is the only way to guarantee that the cost side of your pro forma is completely reliable. There are obviously some other factors, but these are the big ones. And again, this list pertains to a commercial development deal, not the acquisition of an existing developed piece of investment real estate and not for other classes of real estate. Obviously, those lists of creditworthy criteria would be different. So back to the program Damon and I had put together in 2001. We had not yet accomplished the full list of six elements to have creditworthy deals. So we weren't ready to go to a bank and borrow money, but we had achieved enough to make the deals creditworthy enough to source pursuit capital from an equity partner. This was the second level of credit Damon and I had created. Personal credit, derived from credibility, derived from performance. This will sound familiar from our discussion about startups in the last episode. Our real estate startup had achieved enough through our hard work and development of key relationships that Damon and I now had credibility with capital sources to reassure them that taking a risk on us was a good risk. Before I tell you exactly how that went down, I'm going to share with you a bit more about what is referred to as the capital stack in real estate. Now, real estate finance is an extremely complex world. There are hundreds, if not thousands, of possible structures out there. It would take not one, but at least five or six courses in business school to even get an overview of the possibilities. But I'm going to share with you the very basics. I wouldn't even call this Real Estate Finance 101. It's more like Real Estate Finance 001. And again, this overview is based upon a commercial development deal and may not translate completely to other real estate investments. There are multiple categories of funds that are required in the life cycle of real estate development. I think of them in terms of timing, earlier money to come into a deal versus later money. The earliest money in the deal is the most risky because probably nothing has been accomplished to produce a creditworthy deal. The later money to come into a deal is, by comparison, less risky because as objectives are accomplished, or another way to look at it is as contingencies are removed, the deal gets far more certain. 
As in nearly all forms of finance, there is a risk-reward balance. This means that the early high-risk money is most expensive. You have to give up a lot of ownership and control to get it. And the later low-risk money is less expensive and usually comes with fewer strings attached, with a notable exception that we will talk about in a minute. Here are the basic phases of capital and real estate development. 1. Operating capital. Operating capital is the capital needed just to run the business and survive to do the work, basically keeping the doors open and the lights on and providing food and shelter to the principals of the company and their families. This is by far the most expensive capital. If you are raising operating capital, you must establish some of that credibility credit that I mentioned earlier, and you should expect to give up not just part of a deal, but you should expect to give up a big part of the ownership and control of all of your deals. If you have access to it, You should really try to spend only your own money for operating capital. Raising it from others is just too difficult and too costly. And you'll see in a moment from my early experience in raising real estate operational capital that it can really take a bite out of your returns. Pursuit capital. Pursuit capital is related directly to a project or program of projects and represents the money required to take a project from identification all the way through the moment that you close on the acquisition of the underlying property for development. Pursuit capital remains very risky, and there are numerous factors, or contingencies as we consider them, that can impact feasibility or profitability of a project at this stage of pre-development. We'll talk in a bit about managing development contingencies and expenditures during this critical phase of a project. 3. Preferred equity. Preferred equity is capital that comes into a real estate deal from a partner at the time of closing on the acquisition of a piece of property along with any additional equity required from that point through completion of the project. Preferred equity is probably the most conventional form and common stage of equity investment in the real estate development cycle. Preferred equity comes from many sources, high net worth individuals, family offices, institutions, and funds, depending on the size and type of the investment. Preferred equity investors most commonly become limited partners in the development entity, In such a structure, the developer becomes the operating partner. Operating partners are typically expected to leave their own capital in projects at some minority percentage of the amount contributed by the limited partner. Preferred equity is far more affordable compared to operating capital and pursuit capital. Preferred equity not always, but usually comes into the deal after all six of the criteria I provided previously for creditworthy deals have been met. It usually comes into the deal at the same time as debt. Debt is the fourth general category of real estate finance. Debt can come from conventional sources like banks or insurance companies, which commonly make real estate investments, or structured finance sources such as CMBS, commercial mortgage-backed securities, which are essentially Wall Street investments that are funneled into individual real estate loans, or they can come from private lenders such as debt funds or hard money lenders. As you move from more conventional and institutional sources to more independent sources, regulatory requirements are usually fewer, but the cost of funds is usually higher. As I mentioned earlier, even though banks come in far later in a transaction when the deal has been heavily de-risked, the regulatory environment for debt sources is extremely high, and you should expect to have some pretty substantial handcuffs put on you and requirements put in place by a debt source. Oftentimes, this includes personal guarantees or recourse. In general, the goal in managing real estate finance stated in its simplest form 
should always be this. Take as little money as you can early in a deal in order to maintain ownership and control. Use that money toward de-risking the deal as quickly and inexpensively as possible. Then take more money later as the risks and the cost of funds decrease. And Chad's other fundamental guiding principle in real estate finance is always treat other people's money with greater care and concern than you would treat your own. Basically, don't be Bernie Madoff. So back to Damon and Chad in late 2001. As you may recall, we were making the transition from pursuing just one Eckerd deal in Arizona to pursuing a complete program of 16 deals in New Mexico. Now that I've presented to you the phases of the real estate capital stack, you can probably identify that we were needing to raise pursuit capital to go after these deals, along with operating capital to keep the business and ourselves alive until such time as they could be realized. We were needing to pursue those most risky and expensive categories of capital until the deals would be realized. So Dadage's friends and family, where did we turn to source that capital? The answer is that we turned to friends and family, as many entrepreneurs in many fields tend to do. Let me share with you here a bit about Hegel family values. One of the greatest virtues in our family is self-reliance. My father was extremely generous in providing me with a phenomenal education and a great head start. From there, the perspective when it came to money could be simply stated as, don't ask, don't offer. I credit my father for instilling this value system in me and in our family, but it did present a palpable challenge for me when it came time to seek investment in business pursuits. There was one person who made this easier for Damon and me, Walter Crum. Walter was a true gentleman of the business world. He was my father's equity partner for nearly his entire career. In addition to setting an example by his early and unwavering commitment to capital for my father's company, he actively advocated for my father to provide similar support for the endeavors initiated by Damon and me. So out of the hard work and dedication provided by Damon and me and out of the support and faith shown by Mark Hagel and Walter Crum was born Tricor Southwest Corporation, our joint venture development company that continued to execute for several years on development opportunities throughout the southwestern United States. Don't imagine, though, that just because that early investment in Tricor Southwest Corporation was sourced from friends and family, that it was easy money. Quite the contrary. Damon and I were held to very high expectations for performance. We were compelled to operate the business and live very conservatively and modestly, and we gave up a significant amount of ownership, control, and upside associated with all of the deals we did. The terms of the capital provided, as Damon and I would learn later when we were more savvy about investment capital, were very burdensome and upon more costly terms than standard market provisions. My father and Walter would ultimately profit considerably more from the first five to seven years of our operations than Damon and I would. But all of that is okay. My lesson learned and my message to you when it comes to raising early stage capital is this. Don't worry about what is fair for you. Put your investors first and recognize that they are giving you the gift of opportunity and they should be rewarded handsomely for that. Don't look back and don't keep score. Early in your career, you're working hard just to earn the right to continue to work harder in the future. And that's what Damon and I did. We grinded our way through the Eckerd program, making measured mistakes along the way, and growing in the process as individuals and as a company. 
At one point, he and I were each $3 million in debt personally. Remember, it takes credit to make money. Had we not earned the right to borrow that much money from our partners in order to execute on the opportunities in front of us, those opportunities would have never materialized. And I can tell you that carrying the burden of $3 million in debt in my late 20s and in the first half decade of my career was highly motivating and taught me lessons in and of itself. It certainly helped Damon and me develop a thick skin. There were things that happened in the first year or two of our company that would absolutely rock us. And when similar things happened a few years later, well, that was just your average Tuesday. The business for Tricor Southwest Corporation and really the rest of my career was just connecting dots from there. Relationships and performance. Build a relationship. Perform in that relationship. Build the next relationship. Rinse and repeat. But I will save those stories for future episodes of Datages. I want to touch briefly now on the present banking crisis, as I promised at the top of the episode. I'll preface this by saying that I'm more of a student of the banking system than I am a professor, but I engage with banks every day in my work and have an interesting vantage point, especially when you combine my view with those of my associates in real estate, technology, and other industries. Indeed, every technology leader I know personally entrepreneurs and investors and every technology company in which I'm invested was impacted in some way by the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank. And the current challenges facing First Republic are no different. In these two banks, you're talking about two of the very best banks in the country, the darlings of the industry, the best banks with whom to conduct business, truly great business banks that were sophisticated and really took the time to understand and to provide exceptional service to their clients. It's sad to see one of them knocked out and the other one on the ropes. So what happened? Did these banks and the others that are struggling take undue risks? Now, if anything, the current banking crisis is a rare crisis of conservatism. The banks bought too heavily into the most conservative investments, U.S. Treasuries based upon a risk-averse investment model, and undoubtedly some pressure from the Federal Reserve to buy such securities from the government. And when interest rates spiked, driven by the Fed's intent to grapple with inflation, the banks could not derive sufficient returns from their conservative pool of fixed-rate assets to service their other debts. The result is a loss of liquidity and a complete collapse in the valuation of the bank. In the end, this really seems like an obvious outcome of a rapid and dramatic shift from printing money and selling loads of historically low interest rate bonds to jacking up interest rates at historic pace to counter inflation. I'm left thinking, why didn't someone a lot smarter than me see this coming and try to mitigate the impact somehow? It's a question that has to be asked, but obviously a question without an answer. As I was composing today's episode in the midst of these events in the banking system, what I realized was that Not only does it take credit to make money, but it also takes credit to lend money. As the banks scramble for liquidity in this crisis in order to remain solvent, they are further tightening a very tight credit market. As investors lose confidence in the banks, the banks further falter in their efforts to have cash on hand just to cover deposits in the accounts of their customers. The last thing the banks can do right now is lend a bunch of money into the economy. So as credit tightens further and further, interest rates climb higher and higher. Basically, as a borrower, 
you really have to pay the bank a premium in this environment to persuade them to lend you money against their weakened balance sheets. The result is a tighter and tighter credit crunch. And if it takes credit to make money, where are we going to make money? Good question. The only positive perspective I can share is that if you're a business that has any means of deriving capital from any source in today's market, there are opportunities, lots of opportunities. As Winston Churchill said in the mid-1940s, never let a good crisis go to waste. To that end, if you are a crusading entrepreneur working to grow your business against today's headwinds, reach out to us here at Datages. Email me personally, in fact, at chad at datages.com. I'm here to provide you with any input, advice, and guidance that I can offer. And we're developing a new format here at Datages called Entrepreneur's Corner. You actually might end up being selected as a guest to get input and advice on the podcast and to share your business with the Datages friends and family. We're here for you. And as we wrap up this two-part series on investor capital, just to lighten the mood a bit, here's a dad joke about getting your hands on money. If money grew on trees, what would be everyone's favorite season? Fall. Until next time, Dadages friends and family, remember, dad may not always know what he's talking about, but he sure can sound like he does. Thank you for listening to Dadages. If you enjoyed this episode, remember to visit dadages.com and subscribe to the Dadages podcast to get notified for future episodes. You can rate or review on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Why? Because I'm your father, and I said so. Just a little respect is all I ask for. I put a roof over your head and food on the table, and what do you do? No, tell me exactly what do you do, because I'm doing everything. I'm paying for everything. No, get back here. Get back here right now.